podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choice. Chris, how are you on this Sunday afternoon? I am doing rather well, um, if a bit uh, calm and sedate. It's been a pretty tranquil weekend. So despite the fact that we're about to go on uh, a wild ride with a particular director, uh, I'm feeling pretty good, John. I know you are a little bit the worse for wear, so I think the more important question is, how are you doing today? I've been out sick for the last week, and thanks to medication, uh, I've basically been able to sort of uh, get myself into at least enough shape to record a podcast. So if uh, if there's a bit more coughing in this one, I'll try my best to keep that edited out. But, uh, you know, that's just me today. And I definitely need to save my strength because you are right, Chris, we are on a we we are we are needing to save our strengths for what is likely to be some of the wildest movies we've talked about uh on this podcast i would say uh for this our 50th episode so hey ha- look at yeah, that yeah that's pretty cool right i think you mentioned it last time when i went to check afterwards i was like oh yeah this is our 50th episode and so we're going to celebrate our 50th episode uh by letting our freak flags fly as high as they possibly can cuz we're talking about my boy, Ken Russell. Um, I was I think it was last year that you uh, introduced me to the wonderful cinematic uh, towering achievement that is the Devils, and I was forever grateful for that. Um, and we also talked about Layer of the White Worm with Dan uh, for one of our Hooptober episodes, and. Uh, for the month of January, Criterion just put a whole bunch of stuff on uh, their channel, and I, I have decided that I am now in my Ken Russell era and <laughs> uh, have been having the most wonderful time of it. Chris, w- what would your, aside from, you know, the, the stuff that we've already, the, the stuff where he's popped up on the podcast before, what what has your Ken Russell experience been like? My Ken Russell experience has largely been limited to what we've talked about on the podcast. I, I, I mean, I, I knew who he was um, growing up in the 80s. Gothic and Lair of the White Worm in particular were movies that I vividly remember seeing advertisements for when they were released theatrically. And uh, especially Gothic, the uh, the marquee poster of the little imp on the bed next to, I think it's Natasha Richardson. I'm trying to remember the cast now. Um, I can't forget Julian Sands and Gabriel Byrne, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's Natasha uh that had always stuck with me um and i had seen those uh back then and largely was kind of repelled by it i I don't think my mind was ready to kind of be blown open by the ken russell aesthetic so it's really kind of almost a similar journey to you it's really been in the last year that i've kind of reopened myself watched those films watched the devils i had seen the devils um a few years ago and then um through various means, it had acquired a really nice high def copy that I was able to share with you before Criterion uh, eventually got their their mitts on it. Shudder had had it previously, so I was able to see it there. So that was really it. Um, so it's going to be interesting. We're not going to talk about any of those films today. We're going to talk about a different set. Um, one that I have known about forever and never watched, even though knowing my background, uh, I probably should have. And one that is another one that, again, always was intrigued um, by the trailers and by the poster and never had an opportunity to watch it until you had recommended it to me. So uh, I'm happy that we're kind of taking this journey together. Although I suspect uh, you indulged (laughs) in uh, the Russell uh, over uh, much more than I did because I was a little crazy this month. I did. Um, but interest, like, I mean, both of the movies we're talking about today, I think we're both, I would say we're both fairly fond of, so it's not gonna, we don't need to spend too much time on it, but I thought that it was, there is definitely a bottom of the barrel that you can scrape at with (laughs) some of, with, with some of his stuff, like his, like, we'll get into just how his, his excesses as a filmmaker are wonderful and glorious, but they're not always best suited for every single subject matter. Um, but that's not going to be something we need to worry about with these two movies because no, sir, it's uh, th- these two fit uh, right within his wheelhouse. So why don't we get to our first movie for the day, which is Tom Cruise. <laughs> 
right, so first up, we're going with Tommy, Ken Russell's adaptation of the classic 1969 Who album about a deaf, dumb, and blind kid who sure plays a mean pinball. Um, this is basically written and directed by Ken Russell with a huge helping hand by Pete Townsend, who contributed um, not only performance, he's he's in the movie, he um, also acts as the narrator in some portions, contributed a lot more music and um, extra pieces to kind of take the rock opera that was the album and actually translate it into something that I hesitate to call a cohesive story, although it is fairly cohesive, but for um, an album that has long been been lauded as kind of like the quintessential rock opera, uh, you you would think that that would translate very naturally to film, um, and it doesn't because when you are actually viewing something, right, there are interstitial sequences that need to kind of connect the pieces together that you don't have to do on an album. Um, so, uh, a lot going on here. First of all, let's talk about, uh, being star studded, uh, for a freaky Ken Russell movie. And I think one of the things we got to talk about is as highfalutin and as popular in culture as the actual album and the who and some of these participants are, let's be clear. This is very much a Ken Russell film, but it's a Ken Russell film that features Anne Margaret and Oliver Reed as the parents of Tommy. Um, Roger Daltrey is Tommy. um, So there's a good translation there, but then this also has Eric Clapton, Elton John, uh, the rest of the who Jack Nicholson, um, and I'm going to take a page from a quote that you said earlier, John, in our text and Tina motherfucking Turner, uh, which we will talk about uh, deliciously when we talk about this film. Tina um, so Turner is-, is the acid queen. <laughs> she is the acid queen and she will tear your soul apart. So uh, in broad strokes, for anyone not familiar with either the rock opera or the film, um, the action has been kind of moved up from World War One to World War Two, and it's about a couple who fall in love during wartime. Uh, the husband is uh, shot down. I guess behind enemy lines during World War II, leaving Anne Margaret and her unborn child to fend for themselves. She has that child and falls for kind of a shady, duplicitous, um, kind of Uncle Frank, they call him. He he runs a beach holiday resort. Um, they fall in love. Uh, everything seems to be hunky-dory. He kind of gets along with young Tommy uh, up until the husband comes back. Turns out he was just significantly scarred and burned. Um, Returns home to find them in bed. A struggle ensues. He is murdered. And then uh, the parents convince Tommy that you didn't see it. You didn't hear it. Don't say nothing about it, which turns him deaf, dumb, and blind. Uh, So from there, we go on a wild journey where his only release is his amazing ability to play pinball. He becomes a messianic figure. And as is typical in Ken Russell films, when you have a messianic figure, uh, ultimately they have a downfall. So uh, that's already kind of a wild story in itself. Visually, uh, this thing more than matches that wild story. But where I wanted to start kind of talking to you, uh, John, is one of the things that I found really interesting watching the film uh i'd already seen bits and pieces but this was my first i I think full viewing of the film is i am so innately familiar with the album because i am and have been a monster who fan since i was a child um that part of the joy for me was kind of hearing all the differences the new verses and lyrics that are put in songs being reversed around and then of course uh and we will probably talk about this in its successes and its failures. The fact that the who doesn't perform all of it. Uh, the actors perform a lot of the vocals, some to varying degrees of success and some others that maybe don't quite hit it. So what I wanted to ask you before we jump into the movie proper was what's your familiarity with the album and the original music and the basic concept? And then how did that, if at all, play into your viewing of the movie? I... I mean, I knew it existed. I knew the song Pinball Wizard, and that is the end of my thoughts. Okay. <laughs> because I have, uh, I have never, I mean, I, I, as, as a thing that exists, like, I mean, growing up, 
you know, you'd hear a lot of the who on classic rock stations and stuff. So like that, there is at least some basic familiarity with that. And, and of course later when the who became synonymous with, Oh, there's a new episode of CSI starting, um, that beyond like, but beyond that, I, I don't really, the, the who is a blind spot for me for sure. In my, uh, in my musical knowledge. So I, I remember like after watching the movie, uh, going back to the Wikipedia page and like looking at the differences between album and film and just seeing an entire laundry list. Um, it reminds like there's some parts of this that remind me of the similar journey between um, uh, the similar journey that Pink Floyd's The Wall has, where it's similar, like big rock opera gets translated to film. Um, and then in the process of doing so, there's like a lot of changes that like, if you had asked me to sort of talk more coherently about the differences between the, the, the album and the movie for the wall, I could probably speak more on that. Um, but here just I, because of, you know, uh, being much, much less involved in the who's music, uh, is sort of a drawing a blank there though I, I i did text my brother who knows a lot more about the who and even he was like yeah i've never seen the movie i was like <laughs> oh interesting like he he could probably you know go nerd on who stuff and he was like yeah no i never watched it yeah so it's it's funny the the movie does it, it does very much with like very small changes it still follows linearly kind of the plot of the album itself. Um, but of course, when Ken Russell is involved, right, kind of all bets are off. And one of the things that I kept thinking about as I was watching and getting ready for this was when you first started to watch it, you texted me and said, um, is there something wrong with the audio for you? Because I'm not hearing, I've seen people speak, but I'm not hearing any voices. And since I had never seen the beginning, I had to go back and look and go, nope, that's this is the thing. This is how Ken Russell is going to do it. Um, so if you're not as familiar with the album, you don't have those comparisons. Just t- tell me about your experience seeing a musical translated like this. From the Who's perspective of their participation in this adaptation of their own music into a movie, what I what I say I think I can say I like about it is that how much they are able to put themselves in the hands of other collaborators to make it a better picture because the music is fine. Um, and, and, and like, and in some cases ex- exceeds that, like it gets, it's gets really good, but like, I don't have an interest. Like I don't necessarily want to hear Pete Townsend sing acid queen, but you give, but he, but they, why like, everyone has the good sense to put Tina Turner and have her sing and perform that song. And it's amazing. Or having Elton John, motherfucking Elton John in his big giant, co- in his big giant leg costume thing, sing pinball wizard with a whole room full of people. Um, like them giving up that sort of performances to it while it's still being their song, them being comfortable enough to l- allow other people to do it. Um, like, and I mean, that extends to Roger Daltrey, who he is Tommy the movie is about him, but he doesn't actually say or really do anything, given the nature of his character, until like a good chunk of the way through the movie. And then yeah. once it happens, then he starts being charismatic and does the Messiah thing or whatever. But there's a lot of movie where he's just sort of catatonic, while other people are just doing insane shit all around him. And I think that I like I kudos to them for having the like I don't know how they end up doing that but that's that's not a people with more egos i think would try to hog more of that spotlight for themselves and they don't like especially the other members of the who who have roles to play in the movie here and there but they're not like this is people in service of the project rather than you know look at me i'm the rock star i'm gonna show you all the cool things i can do yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and I think that's the, I think one of the coolest things about this adaptation, which by the way, I'm going to just call it right now. I absolutely adored this movie. I had such a blast with it. But part of that is kind of the shock and astonishment of, wow, you, you let Ken Russell do this and you let Ken Russell make a Ken Russell film as opposed to making an adaptation of a rock opera, right? I, I mean, this is very much his film. Uh, when you have, uh, it, you had said it to me as well in an er- earlier text. I 
with one glaring exception, one of my favorite moments of the film is the Marilyn Monroe procession and how Ken Russell is really, really kind of taking the things that he loves to talk about, skewering organized religion, skewering the things that we pay homage to, things that we pay our oblations to in our, you know, daily lives, and just sticking a fork in it and twisting it. That whole sequence uh, with the procession of Marilyn Monroe's and the creepy masks and the statues and all of the crippled people. Apparently, Ken Russell is in the church as one of the people in a wheelchair as well. So if anyone knows what he looks like, you can see this film and try to spot him. But that's such a wild moment. Um, it's the definitely the moment where I texted you saying like, this is clearly a Ken Russell movie. This is clearly like, this a is, Ken this, Russell you film. Could, you could put this into the devils and you wouldn't have to change anything. Yeah. Really not. I mean, there are there are crazy. There's a scene where Roger Daltrey goes into a steel robot Iron Maiden and has his blood similarly like extracted and pumped back in with other chemicals. And it's it's just well, it's just mind blowing. Well, and that because that's that's the Acid Queen sequence. And so that that's not so, so so let's not belabor. Let's not lose the fact that Tina Turner, the Acid Queen turns into a robot that then opens up and he walks into the robot where he is injected with all the drugs, as you mentioned, which is itself wild, but also like she talks about like the line of the song is that you, you know, you pay me up front or however it goes, which means that this is also like sex. He is also like, this is also him losing his virginity to the robot Tina Turner acid queen, which is not a sentence that has ever, I have ever thought to say in my life. That is very true. Yeah. There, there's the Marilyn Monroe sequence, um, the the Marilyn Monroe cult that is great. Um, there's the Acid Queen, which is great. Um, there was the the Pinball Wizard sequence is just a hoot and holler in good time. Uh, I wanted to also highlight the Anne Margaret uh, uh, song where she is lounging about in her very nice uh, the the very nice white room. And thinking about, uh, I think it's like beans and chocolate or something. And then at a certain point, the the room it just explodes in a fountain of beans and chocolate. And she is just writhing around, having the time of her life, uh, and just completely drenched while this room is destroyed around her. And it's, I think it's, a pr- pretty sure it's a dream sequence. But <laughs> I remember thinking at that point in the movie, I was like, I have completely run out of ways to be shocked and surprised by this movie and then watching her completely destroy a a very nicely appointed room uh while she's just you know giddily rolling around in chocolate and beans i was like god damn you ken russell (laughs) yeah but so what i'll say about that and i want to go back to some of the other things so maybe we can talk a little bit about the performances because i i think first and foremost i think ann margaret is fantastic in this movie. Oh yeah. I've always loved her in other things, but she's so good in this, but that scene in, in particular, it's one of those times where, and he does it more often than, than you would think. Like people tend to equate Ken Russell with excess and I'm just going to do this excessive thing. That's bizarre. But I love that scene because it is so grounded in the story and what's happening. Right. So in that scene, she is uh she's in this like opulent mansion that has been paid for by them kind of prostituting Tommy out as the pinball wizard he he has got this thing that Apparently in 1960s Britain, you could become a millionaire by being really good at pinball. So she is living with this, but she is also living with the guilt that she essentially is the one that made him deaf, dumb, and blind. So she is reminded of that in her drunken state and is constantly trying to not think about it because he's on television. So she is frantically flicking the channels to find something else. And she sees a laundry detergent commercial and she sees a commercial for chocolate and she sees a commercial for um, baked beans, which is a great callback to a previous Who album called The Who Sell Out, the album cover of which is Roger Daltrey sitting in a bathtub of baked beans. Um, and then kind of uh, as she struggles and struggles to not confront what she's done to her son, that's when that television explodes. And now she is awash in forgetfulness, which you could equate to. She's now completely obliterated because she threw a champagne bottle or, you know, whatever other things she had done to kind of numb the realization of her actual actions. Um, I think it's a great sequence. And I think where – 
where they really bite into their performances, that's where you have greatness. I think Roger Daltrey is fantastic. And one of the things that I could not get away from as I was watching Roger Daltrey, um, who clearly, um, when you look at the who, there are two people that are really charismatic and they're the two people who have like actual roles in the film because Keith Moon plays Uncle Ernie, <laughs> uh, who is disgusting in the film. But he, I mean, you can't help but see the glint of mischief in every scene that he's in and he carries that forward. Um, both of them are fantastic. Roger Daltrey, literally in 1975, looked like a god, like, unbelievable when they put him up as a Jesus figure and you see this like immaculately sculpted body. It is almost disarming to watch. Um, other performances don't work. <laughs> I, I, I want to show, I definitely want to shout out Roger Daltrey uh, just briefly as being like, yeah, I would a hundred percent buy what he's doing in this movie. When, yeah. Once he's, <laughs> once he's like, I'd never been a who guy, but I'd look at him and go, yeah, I could see why you made it famous. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I could see a bunch of people cultishly <laughs> following him up a mountain, right? Um, I wish everyone else came off, with a few exceptions. Um, I I think we need to devote like a whole thing to Tina Turner. Um, for someone who grew up on The Who, um, I'm fine with most of the performances. Some I'm not. Tina Turner's Acid Queen is the only one where I would say, oh, that's better than what's on the actual album. Oh my God, does she give like everything to the brief time that, and she's ver on very briefly. She's on for one song. I think Elton John also does really, really well. Not as good as Tina Turner. Almost no one can be as good as Tina Turner, but he does really well. Um, unfortunately, Dear God, Eric Clapton is terrible. <laughs> in <this> he, <laughs> he sounds terrible. He, he, he has no expression on his face. And the one kind of grievous mistake I'll give to Ken Russell is he made it infinitely worse because, uh, Eric Clapton sings most of that song during the processional. And then one verse is sung by Arthur Brown. Arthur Brown, um, was a psychedelic kind of blues rock singer in the late sixties, never as prominent as anybody else, but he's the other priest and he takes that one verse at the end. And he is so electrifyingly good that it makes Eric Clapton look even worse in comparison. Uh, that was such a mistake. Well, especially since that's in the <laughs> that's in the Marilyn Monroe cult sequence, which right. is like itself is so like everything is firing on all cylinders. Everything is just popping off like crazy. And then you have like I act, I was I go up about three quarters of the way through that sequence before I was like. I think that's Eric Clapton. Like he just so <laughs> fails to register yeah. um, <clears throat> that uh, th that he everything else in that sequence just blows him away. Yeah, s same with, and we'll only talk about him in passing because he's also barely in the film. Jack Nicholson is a total waste in this movie. Um, it was, yeah, it was. It, at first, I was like, "Oh shit, they got Jack Nicholson," but then he just is like a normal guy who sings a song, and then he's done. I'm like, "Oh, okay. yeah," and he doesn't sing it well. And the heat that he tries to bring, right? There's this moment that's supposed to have a connection between him and Anne Margaret, right? Um, yeah, it doesn't really register. I had read that he had just he wanted to work with Ken Russell because he wanted to see what it was about. And did I the mean, thing if, and left, and that was it. If if I if I've had a way to be on set for a day in the filming of this movie, I would probably be thinking that was worth it too. So I, I get it. <laughs> I guess. Um, but then we have to come to, and I think I'm curious as to your thoughts um, because both of us have a very soft spot in our heart for Mr. Oliver Reed. Uh, so what did you think, John? Because I'll be honest, uh, I love Oliver Reed. I, I mean, I love him with all my heart. I love when he plays these like disgusting characters and he is fairly grotesque. But again, it's the same thing with, um, because Ken Russell insisted on everybody who was in the film singing their own parts, man, Oliver Reed cannot carry a tune. <laughs> he really cannot. I, I will say that he is mostly coasting by on the fact that he's Oliver Reed and you're going to care about that. Like you mentioned the first time I tried to watch it, I got like 
three or four minutes in and was like, I think there might be tech issues. And so I stopped because I was like, I don't want to, I'll come back to this later. Um, but when I actually watched it for real, that song that they added, the the holiday camp song to introduce mm-hmm. Oliver Reed and all that stuff. When I first, because the first, the absolute first sequence is of course with the, with the fighter pilot. That was like fascinating and cool. And it had the, you know, the, the dancing girls with the, with the gas masks. With the gas on. masks. Yeah. For no reason. It's just, they're there. And I'm like, Immediately yeah. a Ken Russell film. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> reveals yeah. It itself um but then the the holiday song where it cuts to afterwards is this like he looks like he's trying to uh, like oliver reed in that for opening scene looks like he's trying to audition for like a grease performance but like 20 or 30 years too old to be in a grease musical <laughs> like it just looks so weird and it's a fairly like toned down like it's, it's it's not a song to like reach for the heavens or the heights of whatever we're going to experience on this. But I was so thrown off because I was like, this is Oliver Reed. This is Oliver Reed. Who's been in the devils. Like I am expecting just like absolute carnage from this man. And it, it, it he comes out in this first song and I'm just like, man, this is kind of underwhelming. Um, and, and, and it, and it turns out it's just like, ends up being like, well, no, you got to, is this just just introduction to get to the more interesting stuff later. And then once the, the thrust of the, you know, plot kicks in and everyone's sort of doing their stuff and they're around, but they're not really like, I think as a supporting player, once the focus gets off of him, it's fine. Cause he's just a player and yeah. sort of doing the vision and stuff. But yeah, I, this is certainly not the central star making performance that, you know, he, he gives an other Ken Russell, uh, in his other big Ken Russell movie or in other sure. performances. I mean, this is not the, the Oliver Reed of the hammer films, uh, yeah. where he's so incredibly sexy and just virile. Um, it's not the Oliver Reed of the three musketeers or even, uh, the brood I was thinking of, like maybe it's a little close oh, in yeah, terms of brood. look yeah. to the brood, but, uh, he's just like a slimy lecherous kind of heel in this film. Um, and it kind of squanders them a little bit, unfortunately, but, but, I, I I think to your point when the focus kind of goes to where it needs to be toward um toward Tommy and Daltrey and and him kind of coming out of his fugue state and accepting this and then becoming this messianic figure to all of these counterculture kids is kind of a delight and it's kind of it's it's this is probably uh at least to the films I've seen one of the least kind of like intense Ken Russell films. Like there's not any of the, the blood and guts and raping pillaging stuff that you see in some of his other films. Although uh, there is a great gravestone that looks like a, like a huge cock with wings that they have in the very beginning. And the sequence with Anne Margaret that you mentioned, uh, there's one moment where she kind of like rides this. It's like a body now, pillow. And it's it like a body like pillow, a di- but it, looks it like just a giant looks like dick. a huge cock that she's riding. And she, and she's so good in that, that part. But uh, when it gets to the end, probably my favorite kind of culty Ken Russell moment is um, uh, at the end, he's, you know, he's on top of, he's on top of all these pinballs um, and the, the, the cult of the counterculture, the greasers and the hell's angels and the nerds and the disabled people are all coming to him saying like, we don't get it. Like, what are we supposed to do? This is like, how do you follow us? And his advice to them is to deaf, dumb and blind themselves <laughs> uh, to kind of numb themselves to what, like, you want to be like me, then shut out all of the, shut out all of the noise that is, you know, making you guys the way they are. And it just cuts to everyone putting these like shades and these corks and then in, in these plugs in their ears and then shoving a cork in their mouth in like the most, S&M bondage fetishistic way that is when I watch it, knowing some of the other Ken Russell films, it just made me laugh out loud that he was basically making everybody look like gimps <laughs> in order to kind of follow this figure, which eventually is is funny. It has a huge kind of uh, very quickly spiraling downfall. A riot is provoked. Uh, Tommy's parents are dead and he just kind of is alone again. <laughs> It's it's kind of a weird ending, uh, an ending which the one thing and that's maybe kind of why I wanted to give this five stars. I, I think I'm settling on like four, four and a quarter because 
my largest thought at the end of this film, and we can maybe wrap this up this way, is um, I don't know what your thoughts were, but as I was watching the end, the only thing I kept thinking was, is that really Roger Daltrey climbing the mountain in bare feet? Is that really Roger Daltrey on a hang glider? I think it is because no one else looks like Roger Daltrey. And instead of like getting caught up in the action of the moment, all I kept thinking was, is he's going to slip on that rock. He's not wearing any footwear. He's going to cut himself. There is one small uh, uh, quibble uh, with the, oh, is it the, is it Uncle Ernie? Is that the uh, Keith Moon uh, thing? He, I mean, Keith Moon is, you know, he, he he's enthusiastic in his performance and it is uncomfortable and funny. And I appreciate that. Um, I do there is there is a sequence though where he holds up a newspaper and it says something about yes you know homosexuality <laughs> that part i that part i wish they would have just just nixed that but i also know that that like when i was doing some googling on because because i was because again i don't know what this is about i don't know what this is about going into it but as soon as i as i see this guy with this weird energy he's like you're gonna be sent with uncle ernie and he's this weirdo i'm like well, this can't be good. Uh, and I start the the lyrics to uh, is it faffing about or what's the what's no the, what's it's the, fiddling about f- fiddling about right? <laughs> so fiddling about. I'm just like, okay, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on here. So I did some light googling about it, and then you get some comments about like T- Pete Townsend talking about you know um, <clears throat> basically conflating uh, pedophilia with homosexuality, and I was just like, oh. And especially given Pete Townsend's personal history, I was just like, oh, dear God, that was that was the one moment where I was like, I had to I would, that would be the part I would just sort of like cut out of the movie just to have it be this, if not like perfectly uh, pulled off story, then just like just make it just the tiniest bit better. That was mm-hmm. that was my other weird uh, moment with the movie that I otherwise loved because it's great. It's an interesting section of the movie, and it's it's actually one I'm surprisingly more restrained than you would think Ken Russell would do because he does – I mean, that is a part of the album. It is a part of the film as well, but Russell kind of wisely blacks out and goes to black for like a large section and just uses really weird audio. That, um, that's actually a, a really good point of being like – given how much excess and how much we right. see in a Ken Russell movie, how in this one sequence, he actually, it does mostly go by off of like mostly metaphor and you just have to be paying enough attention to go, Oh, that's what this is about. Okay. <laughs> the other thing that I'll just note is um, um, the, the scene that you talked about in general with the newspaper. Um <laughs> Again, this is where my brain kept going. It it looked like he almost caught fire <laughs> when he lights the newspaper up. There's a, and that's the thing about Ken Russell. Like I, I'm pretty sure Ken Russell was just like, "Look, you're gonna hold the newspaper. I'm gonna light it on fire. Just you know, before it burns your face off, just you know, just push it apart and it'll be fine." And there is a moment where they cut, and it looks like they cut because Keith Moon is literally about to be set aflame, so they had to cut to make it. <laughs> at least kind of safe that he doesn't hurt himself. Uh, and I, 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 I love that about Ken Russell. I love that about these films where you, you definitely feel even through all of the artifice, there are these just little things that he does that makes it <laughs> feel dangerous, even when it's not supposed to be dangerous. And, and I do love it for that. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> if all of that sounded like that was perhaps too much excess, too much uh, cinematic spectacle. Uh, why don't we? Uh, why don't we turn our attention towards our second movie, which is perhaps the tiniest bit more restrained, which is Altered States. <laughs> Altered States is a 1980 body horror science fiction film, which is a weird thing to say when you think about Ken Russell, but it is very much, uh, there absolutely is some body horror to this movie. Um, it stars William Hurt and Bob Balaban primarily. Um, and this is a movie about a Harvard professor who, uh, for experimenting and research purposes, uh, takes a shit ton of, shit ton of psychedelic drugs and uh, tries to document the results to try and see what are the effects uh, of these drugs. And in the process of uh, doing this, he is a, a person driven 
uh, with a need to find, you know, to transcend human existence, to find whatever's next, the ultimate truth, the ultimate whatever you want to call it. Um, this is a movie that I had not, uh, this is a movie that I had not seen until I think the Criterion stuff had come up in early January. And it is, I want to say compared to Tommy, uh, uh, this is actually something of a, like a more restrained uh, movie because the actual, like, this is a movie about like psychedelics. And so the, the crazy imagery, like you talked about in the last movie about how there's <clears throat> some, some culty stuff that happened, like a small amount of culty stuff that shows up in Tommy. This movie has more of that, but the dramatic through line that sort of is most of the movie is just sort of him, you know, pushing h- harder, uh, pushing himself to do these, you know, more increasingly dangerous experiments. Um, and, so there's much more of like actual, just like regular tension building. And then you get to the moments where you get to see all the wild imagery and, uh, and all that stuff. How, how does, from what you remember, how, how do you compare the vibes of the, of these two movies? I think actually I would argue, um, this is very much so. I, I think I'm agreeing with you. This is very much more, the more restrained film. This is kind of, uh, like really close to just like a studio film. I mean, uh, this is, it's, it, it's funny how you framed it and how I thought of it. I don't think of this as a film about psychedelics at all. This is a film about the chasing of to your point consciousness and what the next stage is, but also at its heart, um, we have to remember, you think about the background. This is basically Ken Russell's take on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That that's what this movie is. In fact, that was kind of the dare that came up with the screenplay by Patty Chayefsky, uh, which is crazy when I saw that credit on the screen, like, oh, this is the guy who wrote Network. He wrote this movie too. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see what Ken Russell does uh, with a rock opera uh, and now what he does with a, you know, like a modern American. This is very much an American movie as opposed to a lot of his other films, um, like an American kind of small studio film. Um, and to that, I do really like it. I think the messianic stuff is really toned down. There is a sequence that is batshit crazy, way more crazy than anything I think in Tommy. But aside from that one scene, everything else seems to follow fairly well to the tenets of what's happening in the film. Um, so I give it a lot of credit for that and that Ken Russell was kind of able to work within the system, create some real moments of like tension and fear. I wouldn't call this a horror movie, but there are some like tense, scary moments. It's more like a, it's kind of science fiction gone awry. Um, our man, uh, William Hurt that we adored so much in, um, body heat. This is his debut film. Uh, he's just Which as is sweaty, insane. <laughs> just as sweaty and naked in this film as he is in body heat. Uh, yeah, pretty much. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Blair Brown, uh, plays Emily, uh, the, the woman who cannot resist him. And then unfortunately kind of has to witness everything that he goes through. Bob Balaban is great. Uh, I'm so glad that you brought his name up second because he's not in a lot of stuff. And when he is, he's like a smaller character. Um, he's great in this. Uh, Drew Barrymore is in this for like maybe 30 seconds. <laughs> it's also, I technically also her film debut as yeah. well, even though it's only for like all of like two lines or whatever. But, um, as I go back to it, like, and I, I watched this maybe about three and a half, four weeks ago. Um, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. I'm still struggling to remember what it is he's actually searching for. So he's a brilliant scientist. He's got access to a a sensory deprivation tank, and he's using that and various drugs in sort of a combination to trigger different realities and states of consciousness to understand if those different states of consciousness are just kind of his brain processing things, which is, I think, how we always take it, or is he actually finding these other realities? Um, And I think that's where it lends itself to its most Ken Russell moments. But I think everything else, and tell me if you agree, John, I think everything else is, I don't want to say standard, but it's, it's, it, it feels less like 
Ken Russell reveling in his excess and more Ken Russell kind of channeling in to try to, as much as he is able to, stay within the guardrails of the studio system. Even when it gets down to a um, prehistoric hom- hominid you know, j- being chased by dogs and jumping up and down across the neighborhood, uh, that to me feels like Ken Russell working within the confines of the studio as opposed to the psychedelic tripping sequence, which is quite possibly as bug nuts as anything he's ever done. And I am shocked got into a studio film like this. Yeah. It, it really, like if, if Tommy is like all bombast all the time, then altered states is much more of a, like, like surgically precise moments of complete insanity um, in a way that I think is probably going to be more appealing to, you know, people who aren't just on board for the Ken Russell madness, I would assume Mm. what's, what's interesting to me, even just sort of reading the, the, the sort of Cole's notes, like history of how like Patty Chayefsky like fought with Russell so much that he had him banned from the set and he took his name off the movie because he was, you know, messing with all of my wonderful script, but you're right. I almost feel like the two, like, this almost feels like an amalgamation of, you know, Chayefsky's dialogue and, and, and like the way that Chayefsky sets up the the movie combined with the, you know, Russell, Russell's instincts in those moments where all hell breaks loose um, in a way that isn't like, I don't know if you'd get that in other Ken Russell movies for better or worse, but I think it actually works very well here in yeah. a way that it, that when 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 things pop off they really pop off but otherwise you're just watching um you know you're watching a drama and 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 actually that reminds me a bit of like the first time i watched the exorcist after years of hearing how insane it was and then actually watching how most of it is like just this very reasonable drama about a woman who goes through every reasonable measure to try and have her sick kid looked at and and exhausting every possible option i'm like that's mostly what this movie is and then, yeah. and then you get, and then, and then you get the, and you get the wild shit later. But, um, all, I think altered states has a similar ratio, I guess, of normal to uh, wild things. Yeah, and I think some of that credit. I mean, I read too about all the arguments on set and Chesky taking his name off. But I think a lot of that is a credit to him that this film is as much as it is preoccupied with ideas and it takes the time to sit and discuss those ideas as opposed to being just a a constant barrage of visual stimuli that make you go crazy. Um, I really do appreciate for that. I had such a good time with this movie. Uh, It was despite everything we're saying about like that focus on on that when it's entertaining, it is wildly entertaining. The scenes where, um, where William Hurt kind of regresses into the prehistoric, being he turns, and, and yeah, he turns into I, Monkey Man. Yeah, he turns into Monkey Man, and it, so two things there. So one, uh, if there is a a hidden star of this movie, holy shit, the makeup by Dick Smith uh, is unbelievable. The bladder effects and the pulsing of the skin, and then just the final physical transformation is astounding. Now it's not William Hurt. It's another, it's like a young, I think they said like a young gymnast or something played the monkey man. We'll just call it that. That's a horrible way to to frame it, but that's who it was. Um, I mean, they literally describe it as devolving into like, regressing into like a previous, a like a different life form. Like, yeah, well, like an earlier version. But what I love is before you get kind of the full Monty of the creature, um, and it, and it's great. There's a whole chase sequence. It's, it's, he's attacked by dogs. It's not like, you know, Dick Smith is so good. There was, you did not need to keep this thing in the shadows. It looked tremendous in every scene it's in and the physical prowess of the performer whose name I don't remember. But I mean, this person's leaping over fences and like scrambling up like parkour style up buildings and stuff like that. It's phenomenal. But. The thing that I love that Ken Russell does is to, to lead up to that, there are these things that don't involve really almost effects at all. We do have like, like William Hurt's arms, like they have bladders that, you know, start to pulse and throb, which look fantastic. But there's a great moment where when he first gets pulled out, he's like spitting up blood. 
uh, and he's talking, but he's like making these guttural clicks and stuff like that. And uh, they're trying to figure out what he's saying. And he gets a piece of paper and he's like something like it, it, he has now that he's returned to human, not all of his body has returned, has re-evolved yet. And he's asking them to do x-rays of his um, of his throat and his chest. Um, and they do. And they find that like. He has the bone structure of a prehistoric early man, and that's what's causing him to be able to talk like that. And then eventually it kind of resolves itself and he goes back to normal. But it's those little things like that that I love that make the lead up to the final transformation so exquisite because I, I think there's another scene where like he looks down, and he's got really hairy feet, and then that goes away. And then there's another section where there's hair sprouting. Um, I love the piecemeal kind of hints and clues as to what's happening before it finally happens. Um, and then that's not to speak, uh, that's not even to speak about what happens at the end of the movie where he, instead of regressing back to this earlier state, I don't know what you would call it, John. Does he like, he blends into different like states of reality and becomes this kind of very eighties <laughs> light digital show, like blobby if you know the film basket case by frank hennelotter <laughs> he looks like that kind of grown to six feet tall uh and then his emily also starts to transform and that last sequence is i guess ken russell's way of like kind of pinning a tail on a on an epic romance because it is love that brings him back from the brink so to speak but in such a ken russell way that i as opposed to Tommy, I found the ending of Altered States delightful. Well, when they, <laughs> when when second wave feminists talk about how you know <clears throat> the men get to go off and transcend and have wonderful ideas, and it's the women at home who compare concerned about domestic concerns, uh, I'm pretty sure they don't have uh, Ken Russell's Altered States in mind. But that is something <laughs> I had a thought of. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, of course it's the woman who has to bring the man back from evolving into a new state of being. Um, <clears throat> the, I, what I, you, you mentioned the, the, the one shot where he's having a shower of like his feet getting hairy and like turning into hands for a second and then they're not there. That comes after his, like that comes after his adventures where other people oh, that's have right. seen, right? Which to me, I kind of think is interesting because you could, this movie could exist on a level of, is this in his, like the, the movie does have on a, on a basic level, a concern with, is this in his head or is it real? But you would think that after you pull the, the pin out of the grenade of, he turns into a monkey man and terrorizes the zoo and eats a sheep that, that that is a like, no, this is real. But then he has that freak out moment where he thinks he sees it afterwards where it's like, well, he's still not fully like the movie doesn't give you necessarily a, a conclusive, satisfying answer to that. It it, it actually still can, keeps like small, like in small bits, like pulling the rug out from under you where he's like, he's still having hallucinations um, even after verifiable things have happened. Um <clears throat> And of course, the the final sequence uh, isn't brought on like the, in the in the hallway of their house isn't brought on by another session in the tank or anything. He just, you know, he's recovered from his monkey man adventures, and then just, you know, the the blob thing happens. And when his wife goes to get him, or she she was the one who had, uh, she was the one who had pulled him out of the tank in the last big one, yeah. and that was. <clears throat> that was a very nice moment. And what you think is the climax of the film, right? She saves I also him, thought it was right. the climax of the film, um, but it's not apparently. Um, but when, but when he, she goes to do it again, it actually doesn't just like hit whatever's happening to him spreads out and grabs her as well. And so she starts transforming into this thing. And for a second, it looks like they're disappear into, you know, a, I don't know if they're like beings of light and energy, if they're turning into like force ghosts or something, but then they come back and like pretty quickly, they just reappear sweaty and naked, um, which is definitely a recurring visual motif in this movie uh, <laughs> is the two of them sweaty and naked. Um, uh, and that's how the movie ends is they, they hug and they're so happy to be back and you know, yay for love, I suppose it, it is actually interesting how like I, again, when this movie goes, 
it goes like hard as fuck. And that's one of the reasons why I love Ken Russell when he's making these studio movies and just the shit that he gets away with is insane. Um, but then also it's a movie about love and love wins. So yay for us, I guess. Yeah. It's a, Hey, it's welcome to his first American studio film, right? (laughs) Love, love conquers all. Uh, so much well, fun. I, I, I have to say I was expecting to like Tommy just because of my familiarity and, and love of the music, but I didn't know what to think of Altered States. And I came away just, like I said, utterly delighted by the film. <laughs> yeah, I I think that uh, if I was if I was looking for if I was not just looking to have my ass completely handed to me, then I would probably watch Altered States. Like this is a, this is a absolutely solid, uh, great time uh, that I could pretty much get anyone on board with, and then everyone will walk away being like, I mean, <laughs> I absolutely know that if I showed this to my wife, she'd be like, "Wow, John, you picked another weird movie for us to watch," uh, but that would be like, I don't know what she would do if I showed her Tommy, but that would be <laughs> that would uh, <clears throat> that might involve some further questions, I think. <laughs> I will say, uh, and maybe this is a good way to close out and move on to recommendations. Uh, my wife did sit down with me for a portion of Altered States. It was one of those things where I was watching it on television. She said, oh, I'll just sit on the couch and uh, have my iPad and my headphones on so I don't have to hear all the noise and stuff that's going on. And she was okay up until the hallucination sequence when they travel to South America. Um, and oh, just, yeah, where he kills the lizard. <laughs> yeah. And just between, like, the, the flashing lights and strobe colors and stuff was already, like, distracting her. So then she turned to look at, to see what was happening. And then she just got up and said, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> probably went back upstairs. Um, that being said, I still say if you're if you're not familiar with the work of Ken Russell, this might be still a good place to start because you get a little bit of everything, but it's housed in the framework of something more conventional. Yeah, and I don't mean that as a negative. Um, so no, I, I guess that's I think states. <laughs> yeah, no, that for sure. Like if you want, like I think for us to be able to have a conversation about this we need to you know focus on the th- the tangible things that we can actually talk about you know the 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 plot the acting the effects that kind of stuff but you also just get images that are this movie is completely replete with images that are inexplicable you have uh you have people uh, hung up on crosses with like goat heads that have multiple eyes you have you have visions of hell with like like dozens upon dozens of writhing naked bodies you have uh, and and these are like the most coherent identifiable images in the movie there's shit that gets way weirder than this and uh in order to watch it you'll just have to go and uh watch altered states for yourself all right so why don't we move on to our next section film recommendations john uh, i mentioned earlier was kind of a crazy month for me so i didn't get a chance to really dive into the filmography uh, of our choice like I like to. Um, I know that is not the case for you. You have been on quite a journey with Ken Russell. So if you've got a couple recommendations for where I should go next in my search for this madman, uh, lay it on me. Absolutely. And I think the the two that, <clears throat> aside from, I mean, we I, I've recommended The Devils in a previous episode, and obviously the two we've talked about here are probably the top. Um, from there, Lair of the White Worm, we talked about on the podcast uh, with Dan, so that's already covered there. Um, the, from the stuff that we haven't already sort of discussed in at least some capacity on this po- uh, podcast, the two that uh, struck me the most were uh, Gothic, which I actually think you have seen. Um, I've reviewed it last it, year for Hooptober. Yeah, it uh, – again – just Ken Russell, Ken Russell madness uh, is uh, <laughs> uh, is all you really uh, need to know. Uh, of course, it does have uh, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Natasha Richardson. Uh, you know, <clears throat> it's got a, it's got itself a good cast and uh, is suitably bonkers uh, for the occasion. Um, and I also really liked uh, his uh, biopic of uh, Mahler, um, starring. Uh, Robert Powell, who actually plays the fighter pilot uh, uh, from the oh. beginning of Tommy. Uh, he takes the lead in this one, um, mostly because uh, 
there most biopics that I know don't involve a dream sequence that is supposed to represent someone's conversion from uh, Judaism to Christianity by way of a bunch of Nazi symbols um, and a woman dressed in a Nazi uniform uh, with things on fire. Uh, so it is because uh, uh, he, he does a lot of like artist uh, movies about the life of artists and stuff. Uh, and certainly this one does not uh, uh, lack in things to sort of be, to sort of fry your brain at the, mm. at the mere side of. So uh, those were the two that uh, I thought, I mean, I had a blast watching, I'd say like 95% of all of it. Uh, but those are the two that I liked the most. <laughs> Duly noted that. So um, having already seen Gothic, I will immediately put Mahler on my uh, to watch list and get right on it. At, at the very least, I just want to hear your reaction to that one scene and see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, I will relay that to you. <laughs> Absolutely. Chris, if things have been uh, a bit wild on the home front, is there something that you have, in fact, been able to catch up on this month? There has. Uh, I'm going to talk about one film um, in general uh, because it's gotten a lot of press as kind of being a bomb. Um, so I want to take that apart for just a quick second. Um I had very little to no expectations going into this film. Uh, my, my fondness for the Marvel Cinematic Universe has kind of waned over the past year. Uh, there's been nothing that has really resonated with me. Uh, you're really starting to, I think, now see the not only the cracks in the foundation but the seams that hold all of these movies together they all are really starting to look and feel the same which is why i was kind of shocked that uh i really freaking enjoyed the marvels <laughs> um and i i think part of that delight comes from the fact that watching this movie um directed by Nia DaCosta, uh, who uh, formerly I know from uh, did the Candyman remake, which I also really in enjoyed. Uh, she also co-wrote this with Megan McDonald and Alyssa Karasik. Um, but uh, uh, I can see why the raving comic book boy fandom sad boys like went on a tear against this movie, because this movie is about three strong women enjoying the bonds of sisterhood, fighting another female villain. Uh, but really, they're not really fighting that villain. They're really coming to grips with the concepts of family and identity and what it means to be a part of each other's lives. Um, and... It's kind of outright hilarious. <laughs> I was shocked at how funny it was. Um, uh, I have never made a secret of the fact that I am somewhat smitten by Brie Larson. Uh, I, I think she is, uh, ever since Short Term 12, which is one of the best films I've seen in the last 20 years, she is phenomenal in that movie. Uh, movie. I think she is, is great as Captain Marvel. Uh, a little bit of a cipher, uh, but that's fine because, quite frankly, um, Iman Vellani as Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel, is such a scene stealer, is such a joy in every millisecond she is in this movie that she brings everything together and makes the standoffishness of um, Brie Larson's character work. She makes the familial conflicts of... Um, uh, Monica Rambeau, uh, who is, uh, the, the third part of this trifecta of, uh, supergirls. Uh, it, it, it makes all of the, the conflicts and problems that she has come to light. Um, and I'll just say there is a sequence that is set to a Barbra Streisand song that had me laugh out loud for like 30 seconds. And that was not something I was expecting to get out of this movie. It tries to do something different. It tries to not, kind of be in the same MCU studio mold. I think the problem is, is that the MC studio mold is so strong that you can't quite escape it. Uh, so does this movie have problems? Yeah. The villain is terrible and bland and has no personality to speak of whatsoever. Uh, almost everything looks like it was shot either on a green screen or in that volume thing that is the rage with everybody right now. So nothing looks tangible and real. Um, but good news, the thing that is tangible and real are the relationships and the interactions and the interpersonal stuff that goes on in the film. Uh, and I was shocked at how much I enjoyed it. 
<laughs> that <clears throat> that's encouraging to me because uh I think I'm probably going to check it out. Editor John here breaking in for a quick second. I actually did end up watching this last night uh, before staying down this morning to edit the episode. And I basically back Chris up on everything uh, about the Marvels, the dynamics between the three leads, Kamala Khan's family, the Barbra Streisand sequence is fucking amazing. It's so good. Um, but yeah, the plot of the movie literally rips off Spaceballs. So... It's not without problems, but it is delightful and worth watching at least once, and is blessedly comes in under two hours running time. So that that I just wanted to add that. I will say that one of the one of the sins of this movie um, is it is so heavily tied to everything else going on. So if you've never watched um, the Ms. Marvel television show, you're not going to know who Kamala Khan is unless you read the comic books. Um, the the first the Miss Marvel show is the Miss Marvel show is good. The Miss Marvel show is is a delight. So every time this movie is like that show, it is fantastic. Uh, and her family from the show plays a prominent part in the movie. Uh, there it. are animated segments just like the TV show. Um, Monica Rambeau is from WandaVision, although it was very fleeting. Uh, the the plot, it's an interesting kind of overall concept for what the goal is of the villain, but it relies on. The first Captain Marvel movie, which I got to admit, I've only watched once, despite loving Brie Larson, it d- that movie did not work a lot. Um, so you have to like remember, oh, this person's from this movie, this person's from that movie, and oh yeah, I forgot that that was actually the plot of Captain Marvel um, in order to make this movie work. So I wish it wasn't like that, but the funny parts are funny enough. Um, Amon Vellani is so good that you can kind of breeze past some of that um and and get on board uh it was just nice to see a movie that was just about like three people connecting and and understanding what it means to you know what's it like to be a fangirl and meet the person of your dreams what's it like to you know to disappear from a family member and what does it mean to not know who you are to have a reputation that maybe you feel you earned, but in hindsight, maybe isn't completely true. Like it really focuses on those things more than just Marvel blam, blam, push the story forward. Uh, and I enjoyed it for that. So that's my recommendation. Before I pass out into the next stage of my convalescence, I just wanted to say thanks again for doing this, uh, with me for this episode, especially, and, uh, for doing it for 50 episodes. Uh, yeah, we, we did the thing. Had I known, I would have brought a little cupcake and a candle to to blow out. We hit a milestone. Um, and and we should add, uh, it might be because you're sick and my brain is addled. Um, part of the reason why uh, I have not uh, caught up on the filmography of Ken Russell is because we are catching up on another filmography, John, which by the time this comes out, I think we will have three posts in the can, and that is the filmography of Akira Kurosawa. Um so please go to the website cinemaduel.com and check out um, our ongoing series uh, called Something Like Filmography, uh, which takes a, a, a brief and conversational look at every single film directed by uh, our benevolent lord, Akira Kurosawa. I think by the time of this, we will have uh, Sanshiro Sugata Part 1, The Most Beautiful, and Sanshiro Sugata Part 2. And we are actively working on for the next one coming at the end of February, uh, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail. So it's been a great run. I've really been enjoying doing that with you, John. Um, so you can check that out and uh, expect two every single month as we go through the man's filmography. Absolutely. It has been a blast doing those. And I feel like <clears throat> especially with the ones that we're just doing now and sort of leaning into that we are about to like really start to hit the gas with uh, Kurosawa in the, in the next little bit. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited for our next, uh, our next batch of films. Me too. Before, we, before we hit the, you know, the Titanic masterpieces, like he's even men who t- tread on the tiger's tail. I feel like a change where like I can feel the movies <laughs> getting better. And so I'm, I'm excited for like that, that rise to continue until we, you know, hit the the all-time classics and all that stuff so i'm uh, i'm i'm very excited yeah i think what we may have to do um i'll call it out now don't hold this to it but like maybe after we get like maybe we'll do checkpoints on the podcast um 
a couple times a year just to be like, hey, this is where we are, like any thoughts that we want to vocalize. So we'll think about that and maybe you'll hear that on an episode forthcoming. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Clearly, we put a lot of thought into this 50th episode thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, you take care of yourself. Uh, to everyone listening, thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves, and we will see everyone next time. Everyone be well, be safe. Bye.